Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Last week on this podcast, we talked about ethics, meaning being a person of conscience, being willing to own things that are being said or done, to observe them, to note them, to make some decisions about what to do, and to take some actions on them. Now, in those situations, they happen either because someone, everybody else is doing it, because you're getting pressure from a senior level, or because nobody else has spoken up about it. So, those are the kind of circumstances that you find in which your ability to speak out with your own sense of conscience about what matters to you, what you value, becomes important. And we find those are the hardest situations for influence, that we're trying to influence other people in a gentle way at times and in a harder way at other times to do things differently, say things differently. This podcast, though, I want to take a deeper dive into the general sense of influence. How do you begin to influence people around you? I have to tell you, of all the things that I get asked to do, it is probably the number one question, how do I influence? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And my guest today, again, is one of my all-time favorite people on this topic. It's G. Richard Schell. He's a faculty member at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he chairs Wharton's Legal Studies and Business Ethics. The book we talked about last week is called The Conscience Code. And the books, two books that I want to talk about this time are his award-winning book, Bargaining for Advantage, Negotiation Strategies for Reasonable People. I love that title. What a great one. And my second all-time favorite on influence is called The Art of Woo, which was published with Mario Musa. Uh, Richard has been featured in just about every place you can imagine. He has worked with executives from Fortune 500 CEOs to Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, hostage negotiators, Navy SEALs, UN peacekeepers, school teachers, labor unions, nurses, and hospital administrators, just to name a few. And he's been featured in dozens, hundreds of places in the press from New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, Inc., Financial Times, Time, Huffington Post, Real Simple, and Men's Health. And that isn't the full list, just for the record. So, Richard, welcome back to the show again. Thank you. And you missed a very important one. I've been... uh talking with Wanda Wallace, which is one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) Even better. I like that. I like that. All right. So what's your passion around influence and negotiation? Why do you care about this topic? Uh, Well, um, I was a lawyer before I became a professor. And it it was more of a stepping stone to being a professor than it was a professional commitment. But because I was a lawyer for a uh, four years or so, uh, you know, I just, I, I grasped the problem of persuasion and influence uh, as a professional activity, because that's lawyers pretty much engage in that all the time, as well as negotiation, because that's also what lawyers do all the time on behalf of clients. But, um, but then as I pivoted into the Wharton School, and I encountered the business world at the level that Wharton permits, um, I realized that this really is the interpersonal part of getting things done is the hardest part 
you know, there's lots of people you can hire to tell you what the right thing to do is uh, by strategy or, um, you know, uh, whether you want to enter a global market or whatever, but doing it <clears throat> very hard and, and very um, personal. You know, that's the part that I think I really came to light on was that each of us does this in our own individual way. And there really is no um, menu where, you know, you cook an omelet and you cook it the same way every day and everybody eats it and loves it every day. When it comes to influence, persuasion, negotiation, everybody's an artist and there are patterns and social psychological factors that, you know, a wise person takes into account. But it's very situational and it's very um, uh, interpersonally specific. The chemistry matters. So I'm a student. I mean, you know, I look like a professor, but I'm really a student. And when you have a subject that allows you to learn continuously and dives into the mysteries of human interaction and, and uh, human personality, there's no end to it. So, so I've learned a lot about myself in studying this, and I've also been tasked, because I've studied it, with some fascinating um, challenges uh, posed by the Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania. I've led the most recent redesign of the MBA curriculum, which is a, a, a horrific thing to have to do, change an academic curriculum, and also worked as a leader in initiatives, uh, really uh, from the bottom up at the University of Pennsylvania to um, challenge the strategy that the university had had, had with its surrounding neighborhoods yeah. and, uh, and, and pushed for a more creative and progressive agenda to engage with the neighborhood instead of keeping it at arm's length. So those, those opportunities, which I see as practice opportunities, have enriched even more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my sense of how important these skills are. All right. Now I know why you're my favorite person on this topic or one of my favorite people in general. And that is the acknowledgement that this is an artistic dance. I always use that word because it's two-way and it's not just what you want to do, it's what the other person brings. And it is interpersonally driven. And there is no formula, which I think is what people are hoping for. I think people are looking for a shortcut when they ask me for influence, as opposed to the practice the steady, constant, regular practice of figuring out how to convince people to do something different or to think differently. Well, the, I guess, I guess the, the thing that is constant is, uh, the, are the factors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but just like if you're playing tennis and you may have a great forehand, a great backhand, a great serve, and a great net game, you know, you've practiced all the moves. But then when you put the other person on the other side of the net, then you've got this very interesting thing you have to do, which is adapt your skills to the skills and the goals of your opponent. Now, tennis is simple because the goals, you know, are directly opposed to one another. And in real life, in organizational life, uh, you know, the magic is finding when they're not, (laughs) although we often think they are. Um, But the the factors, um, for example, uh, when you're trying to do influence strategy, the most important thing to think about is who the other person is and what do they think of you. And, of course, most people start the other way around. They think, okay, what are my goals and who do I have to run over to get them accomplished? And uh, so, so, so the sort of habits of thought that are kind of based on humility, it's really not about you. It's about 
them? And then how do you think about them? That's really, uh, I think, the kind of thing that advances the ball. Right. And that's where we come back to it is interpersonal. It is about the relationship and something I know you believe, as do I, that the level of trust between the two people is going to alter everything about how this process goes or not goes. I find, I just want to echo this, that we, um, I want to talk about a topic that bugs me. I know it bugs you too. We use the language in business, win-win. But most of the time, we're not actually thinking win-win. We're thinking in some version of win-lose. Now, before everybody goes, no, 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 I'm not. It's how little can I give up in order to get what I want is often the frame. That is a win-lose frame. I'm going to lose something in order to gain others, or you're going to lose a lot more than I lose in order for me to win. We often think in win-lose. And that puts the other person as an obstacle, as a barrier in some ways. And that sets up everything about the interpersonal dynamics of what's going to happen. I know this is something you've written about. So let me get your comments on that. Yeah. I mean, what, what you're um, basically, if you're thinking about an interchange as having um, an aspect where you defeat the other party, whether by changing their minds to make sure they look like, you know, they, they get the same idea you do, or whether you get them to concede or, uh, capitulate to something that you have in mind. That's sort of the tennis match, you know. That's that's uh, you know you're on one side of the net, they're on the other. It's up to you to be clever and put the ball where they aren't and win the point. And of course, that means they have to lose the point, and then we go back and do it again. In in many ways, I think when you're in organizational life, a better model is um, you're both on the same side of the net, and you're trying to you know. Uh, Play some game where it's more of a cooperative enterprise. How many times can we keep the ball in play against the wall, but we have to always exchange turns? Uh, so you want to put the ball where they can hit it, not where they can't. Uh, and, and, then, um, and then with that, you sort of begin to think of the other person as more of your partner, um, but then there are going to be conflicts. The other side has a better, your partner has a better backhand uh, than forehand. Uh, you have a better forehand than backhand. Well, that's complimentary, but you both have better backhands. Uh-oh. Uh, now who's going to get the ball? So I think that the, the, the model uh, winning and losing is, is flawed on both counts. It's, it's flawed in win-lose. It's flawed in win-win. Because I think what's really going on is um, strategically – what you're trying to do is understand what your goals are, understand what the other party's goals are, dive into those goals to make sure that they're the right goals, that they're the intelligent goals, that they're the wise goals, and then work to achieve them. And some parts of those goals are going to have conflicting aspects, and you're going to have to navigate that. And some parts are going to surprisingly be aligned, and you're going to be able to surf on those. But what most people do is they, they, they scope because the human cognition system is set up to uh, sort of handle uh, scarcity, allocation, you know, who gets what credit, who gets what's power, who gets what resources. It's a, it's a primitive evolutionary part of our psychology. The real work is <clears throat> taking those forces and putting them on hold temporarily while we explore, you know, mm-hmm. how to frame the problem in a way that allows us to really advance toward goals that are the best goals for the situation. You know, I, I, I view influence skills as a kind of nuclear power. 
um, when you understand them better and you are asking the right questions, you've got this amazing force at your control. But the question is, will you use it for good or not? And, you know, nuclear power, you can power a city or you can blow one up. And um, so I think, um, I think a lot hinges on your motivations, on your self-awareness, uh, and on the balance between uh, self and other that we all have to strike every day in our relationships. We're social creatures, but we're also survival creatures. And uh, that's just part of the human condition. These skills that we're talking about are the kind of crystallization of those dynamics and those contradictions in really important, let's get it done moments uh, where resources are allocated, where decisions are made, where uh, initiatives are, are conceived. And everybody wants to be effective in those moments. Uh, but nobody can be a too effective. It's funny. I've taught this for over 30 years. I've never met anyone, not a single person who's too good. Okay. Uh, and the best people actually are always thinking, I'm not good enough. Yeah. Yeah, because that's what keeps the edge on looking for one more level about what is my goal really and what is the other person's goal and are we on the right page and what else do we need to be doing and how do I strengthen the relationship or the dynamic or deal with this particular conflict or so on. Yeah. It's um, it's interesting to me that when I talk to people, we talk about influence. They want to talk about influence because that's how I get, I think, largely what I want is how people are thinking about it. But influence skills for me go hand in hand with conflict skills, Mm -hmm. because if I'm going to do influence, there will be inevitably in a group of people conflict, different views, different perspectives, different languages, different sense of what is right and wrong, different reward structures, different everything that we're never going to align. But we so rarely talk about how to get better at navigating the conflict that's present in any negotiation or any influence skills. So, to me, they're, they're flip sides of the same coin or pieces of the same puzzle. Yeah. Well, I, I have a, a model in my head that connects these things. And I okay. think it's important to realize what kind of conflict okay. you're having. Because not all conflicts are the same. Um, so, I, the way I see it, influence is everything you do, verbal and nonverbal, that affects other people's perceptions of you. So, influence is what entitles you to command their attention. And really, the most important concept that floats around this word influence is credibility, I think. Mm-hmm. And so you walk into a conference room and, and they're gonna, you're going to have a meeting. Uh, you, you, as soon as you step into that room, you're exercising influence of some sort. And it depends how effective or how uh, you know, uh, important you're going to be perceived in that room is going to have to do with what do they think your authority is mm-hmm. in this situation. Uh, if they think you have the right authority to be in the room or even the uh, final authority on the decision, they're going to pay a lot more attention to you mm-hmm. than if they think that you're, that you're really just visiting and you don't have any authority in this situation. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two, what do they think your expertise is? What do they think you know? And how much are you going to bring to the table that's conceptually right. useful? Uh, if they think you've written a book on the subject, then they may pay a little more attention than if they think that you, you know, just graduated from undergraduate education and then you don't really know anything about whatever the topic is. Third is what do they think your competence is? 
how what how how uh, how can they trust your experience and judgment? Because knowledge and judgment are two different things. Uh, and to the extent that you're experienced, you have a track record, you have some, uh, and they know about it. This is the important mm-hmm. thing. It's not just mm-hmm. what you are. It's what do they think you are. Then they're going to listen to you. Um, and then the final leg of the stool, if you think of it as a four-leg stool, is the thing you've already mentioned, which is do they think you're trustworthy? Mm-hmm. And that's always running in people's minds as a subroutine, because if they don't think they can trust you, if they have reason not to trust you in their minds, then your competence, authority, and all the rest of it is going to be at a high discount to whether they believe you. Uh, And if they, you know, they may not know you, in which case trust is kind of a neutral, you get to win it. Uh, Or they may know you well, and they may trust you, in which case uh, now They'll trust you to tell them that you don't know X, but you do know Y, uh, or that you have authority to do X, but you'll need to consult to get authority to do Y. And they'll believe you when you say it. So when you walk in and you've maximized on those four elements, so your credibility is at its peak insofar as, you know, you have these attributes, then you're in the room and they're listening to what you say. Now... You might have conflicts over beliefs. I believe that the right strategy is X. They believe the right strategy is Y. Now we're in the persuasion space because conflicts over beliefs are managed by persuasion. Uh, or, I mean, that the, 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 it could be at the end of the day that if you have enough authority, you can just resolve the conflict with the authority. But assuming that that's not, um, the, you don't want to get there until there's no other option. So now persuasion is, <clears throat> okay, what reasons, what evidence, what justifications will they need based on what they know and what they already think to bring them to your point of view? Uh, and your favorite reason may be, this is a great strategy because it implements our mission. But their favorite reason may be, I want to see the data. And so if you come in and talk about visions and try to persuade them with your vision and don't show any data, I'm persuasive. Uh, if you realize that these are all engineers or they're data scientists or big data people or whatever, you bring your data, even though you don't think the data is all that conclusive, they need to see it. So you start with that. And then, by the way, it's consistent with our mission and you've got their attention. So persuasion is a kind of influence. But it has to do with conflicting beliefs and opinions. And then somewhere in there, there might be uh, an allocation that has to take place. Who's going to get what authority to manage this? Who's going to get credit for it if it works? Who's going to get the money or the people or the time or the office space to make it happen? And that's a negotiation. So there's going to have to be an allocation. People are going to go, well, I'll give you the corner office if you can give me two of the other offices. Um, uh, you can get your resources, but let's stage it over a period of time and let's see how you do with it for a little while and test that out. And then we'll give you more when you prove something. And those are negotiation skills and negotiation skills are essentially persuasion in the face of scarcity. (laughs) You know, you've got to allocate. And so it has to be strategic. It's often very emotional because we want to be treated fairly. We get frustrated when we don't get our share or what we think is uh, what's, uh, what's what we need in order to solve the problem. And that's when things can go off the rails. So 
Negotiations are conflicts over interests. Now, a conflict over a belief and a conflict over an interest are two different things. And if you try to negotiate with someone when you have a conflict over a belief, it's insulting. You know, you don't, you don't say, I'll tell you what, I'll believe that Pluto's the last planet if you'll believe that the sun is going to you know, go out in 5 billion years. It, it, this doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. Uh, on the other hand, if all you do is offer your opinion on what's fair in a negotiation and nothing else, and you don't address their interests, you're not going to be a very effective negotiator. You know, a good negotiator says, okay, what do you need? Why do you need it? And how can I help you advance those needs and advance uh, toward the things you think, uh, you know, you have to have in order. And then in exchange, you're going to give me some stuff that I need and that I have to have. And we can, uh, you know, manage this negotiation process because we're trying to address our interests. You can address interests and have conflicting beliefs. Right. You know, we'll just say, well, look, let's just agree to disagree about where Pluto is. In the meantime, let's, you know, do the budget. Uh, uh, and you can uh, certainly have many disputes over beliefs that don't involve negotiation. Right. Uh, so I think it's really important for executives. I think one of the biggest mistakes they make is they don't understand that all conflicts are not equal and the same just because they happen to feel the same. I mean, it feels the same. You're resisting me. <laughs> you don't, you're saying no. You're saying right. I don't get it. But they're different tools for different problems. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the, you know, somebody that I've interviewed on this podcast, Adam Kahane, and one of my favorite people talking about conflicts and about how you resolve conflicts. And his basic starting point is that even if we have fundamentally different beliefs, like a drug cartel and the government who are at a loggerheads on beliefs about society and money and, you know, law and a whole bunch of things right. can still come together over a mutual interest. Yes. The yes. school education system, for example. And so there's an example of how we pull apart the beliefs and the interests and we can tackle a negotiation around our common interest that kids get educated, right. but not necessarily have to tackle the differences in beliefs. I, I think that's the art of politics affected politics. Uh, and where policy just goes off the rails is when they say, we won't negotiate with you until you believe what we believe. Right. Uh, whatever the belief is. And if that's, you know, I mean, the, in, the, in the American system, the people who set it up said, look, we're going to have factions. They're going to have different yeah. beliefs. Let's have a system where we can negotiate with each other. Right. And, um, and I think, you know, where you find politics in gridlock is where people condition their right. negotiations over, you have to believe what I believe before I'll talk to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, in business, it's often a little less fraught than that if, if it's uh, focused on, you know, the mission, whatever the mission right. is. But it still can have the same quality. Uh, someone can say, well, until you come around to my belief about the strategy, um, you know, I'm not going to put you in charge of anything. And, you know, there's a, a kind of a, a standoff that can be very ineffective. Right. Uh, so that's where trust comes. You can right. trust someone and not actually share their beliefs. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was going to pause on trust for a second because we've mentioned it several times. My, I a, the FBI, when I work with them, uh, they gave me an insight into trust that I think is interesting. 
because in a hostage situation, you have to gain a little trust, and it's a pretty fraught situation. Um, and their, their theory of this is that people trust you when you demonstrate that you have their interests in mind and you're willing to sacrifice something that you didn't have to sacrifice, you know, to advance their goals. So it's, it's um, it, you know, the more trust, uh, the bigger the sacrifice, the more the trust. And what's happening in the interpersonal piece is people are kind of pretty much starting with a baseline of, well, you're in for you, I'm in for me, you know, and, um, and so that's normal human interaction. I mean, you're not out to get me. We're just there trying to, you know, drive on the highway. But when someone demonstrates that they're actually anticipating and trying to help you at some inconvenience or some sacrifice of their own interest, they, they let you merge in front of them. You have a different quality to the way you perceive them. You right. go, wow, that's a nice person. They're thinking about me. And, and I think in business, the more um, you can keep that in mind in your relationships, that you're really looking for opportunities to do favors for people, to be um, helping them. Uh, to get out of their way if it doesn't matter much to you uh, and to connect them with people and do things that facilitate their needs, you're building a bank of trust. Right. Um, now, also trust comes, of course, from being reliable and a person of character. And, but even that suggests you're willing to sacrifice something on behalf of your values. Right. And, uh, and people go, well, they're just not a complete egomaniac, so I can trust them a little bit. <laughs> And trust them a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think in corporate life, we're always working with degrees of trust. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so and, can... and, and, and even the same person, you can trust in one situation, but exactly. not another. Exactly. Yeah. And so it, I think it is situationally mm-hmm. driven and it is relationship driven. And it is like, I might trust your expertise in this context, but I'm not going to trust your expertise in a different context. And I might have a lot of trust in your expertise and not a lot of trust in you personally. I think there's... I think it's multi-pronged, this thing of trust in corporate world, and we don't talk about the factors that drive it one way or the other in a broad way. But um, I just want to echo something because uh, people who listen to this podcast regularly know that I'm a big fan of Charles Green's work, and I always talk about his notion that intimacy is the bigger driver of trustworthiness, a judgment that I'm going to trust you. But when you look at what his word intimacy really means, it's very consistent with what you're saying. So it says, I'm willing to be a bit vulnerable, meaning I'm willing to take a bit of a risk and do something for you that I don't have to do. Small, in order, that's that sacrifice idea that I'm willing to do a little bit. Now, if I don't know you and I do a whole lot, that's a little weird, like, you know, what, yeah. are you, what are you trying no, that, to buy that, here? That's what, con, you know, people who are the best at building trust are con artists. And that's <laughs> why we alarm, alarm bell goes off when someone out of the blue starts doing stuff for you. You start thinking, wait a minute, where's the shoe going to drop? <laughs> this person is trying to push my button that I'm going to trust them, but I don't trust them because they don't really know me. And yeah. they're doing this for no reason that I can discern. But vulnerability, absolutely. And, and it's, and it's, um, it's not, you know, it, the vulnerability um, moment, it shows people that you're working with that you're not perfect mm-hmm. and that you have doubts and that you have emotions and that you have um, uncertainties. And, of course, that's what everybody feels. Right. But when you show it, 
you're showing weakness potentially. And yeah. that's why, oh, they're willing to show weakness. That means that, you know, they're putting themselves at my mercy. And that's a kind of foundation that's a sacrifice. You know, you've let down your guard and, and, and you didn't have to. And so now the natural thing we want to do is reciprocate. That's the human uh, social uh, gene. Yeah. And so when you're vulnerable, I feel open to be vulnerable. And now we're both vulnerable. Now we can trust each other in a way that we couldn't otherwise. And then other things we can trust each other on that may have more material consequences right. and we can build right. on it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's great. And great it's content. a review over time. This is the other thing. It's not a one shot. You were vulnerable once and then never again. Right. It's that kind of steady reveal a bit more of who you are, your willingness to help me, your willingness to sacrifice, your willingness to admit your weaknesses. Right. That makes all the difference in the world. But isn't, it, isn't it curious, the contradiction? Because this is where trust is built. But to be an effective negotiator, for example, you have to get stuff. And, and, you know, you have to, you have to, you know, achieve whatever uh, outcome is that you're looking for. And mainly that's an allocation where I get X and you get Y. So we have this paradox. The negotiations go better when we trust each other. But to trust each other, we have to be willing to give stuff to each other. But actually, you know, people think of negotiation is where we take stuff from each other. <laughs> uh, and so that's, I think, why it's an art. Because the give and the take um, are done in a way that takes into account the other individual and who they are and what their expectations are, what their emotional makeup is, so that you do it in the artful way that builds this relationship with them. It's not just a set of moves or tactics. It's a genuine connection. Right. And, and, uh, and you know. It's, it's magic. That's, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a wonderful play I attended uh, before the pandemic. And at the end of it, the actor who was the lead role came out to the front of the stage and he was raising money for Broadway Cares, which is a charity that, um, that the actors, actors' equity have for, um, for healthcare. And, but he said something that has always stuck with me that relates to what we're talking about. He said, when someone dies, a universe dies with them. And the insight that every human that you interact with is actually a unique universe. And it's, it, you know, it's just here on the planet for a period of time, just as you are. And so when you encounter them, the, the job of exploring what their universe is and the uniqueness of it is, is really, you know, what you may only get a tiny little corner of it, mm. but, but, but being curious here we are where universes are encountering each other, you know, tell me about yours and uh, creating some shared understanding of what, uh, where the universes might overlap a bit. That's the art, I think, of this connection piece. Right. Yes. And, you know, my brain always goes to the place of, I think that's true that each person has their own universe and perspective and experiences and likes and I mean, a whole bunch of stuff, regardless sure. of whatever other background we bring to that. Yet there are some of those universes that I'm going to be less willing to explore than others. Right. And therein is the challenge. And yeah. sometimes like, I'm not sure I want to explore a whole lot of universe for somebody who believes that killing other people randomly is a good idea. I'm not sure I want to go there. But, but, but 
I don't want to go there. I don't want to occupy that universe. But if I'm in law enforcement, I need to understand, understand it. it. That's a different story. Agreed. Different story. And the same is true. You know, 3% of business executives are psychopaths. Yes. And, yes. and a psychopath is a pretty unfortunate category. They're not mass murderers. They're glib, charming, charismatic people who have this gift of, in, you know, being con artists. They can, they can, uh, they can trigger trust. Sort of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes is a current salient example of someone who had this gift. Well, we better understand them, even <laughs> if you don't want to be them, yeah. because, you know, they're going to lead us into jail if we don't uh, figure it out. Okay. So, Definitely. you know, yeah. Okay. All right. So let me see if I can do a quick summary here and make any sense of all of this. This is a lot that we've said. And you said that influence is the verbal and nonverbal stuff we do that affects people's perception of you. And that perception starts the moment I walk in the room, actually probably starts before I walk into the room. And one of the biggest things is how does that perception contribute to my credibility? So how much authority do I have? How much expertise do I have? And how much competence, which is experience and judgment? And then next is the trustworthiness. What is driving that trustworthiness? I would just um, just want to just correct one thing. It's not yes. how much you have. It's how much they think you have. Yes, how much they think you have. And yes, that's a thank crucial you. difference. That's uh, a crucial difference, right? If they give you credit for all these things and you have none of them and you keep your mouth shut, you'll have credibility. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And we also see now why self-promotion done well is such an important factor and why executive presence also done well has such an important factor. Precisely. All right. Now, and we've talked about trust in terms of this willing to sacrifice something, the vulnerability, the refueling a bit of yourself, the doing small favors for people as a way of building trust and the notion that trust is a constant evolution on a scale of up and down in corporate life. Um, and I love the idea that unique individuals, and we're going to explore their universe. The last piece that just really hits me, I never thought about it this way, is the notion of conflicts, that when we have a conflict in belief, we're into the world of persuasion, maybe, or we can agree that we disagree. But when we're in conflict over interest, we're in the realm of negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. And negotiation and, is not a give and take. It's a give and take. It's an art of give and take, but it's not all take or all right. give. And, and you can really distinguish those two. What's an interest? An interest is a motivation. It's a need, a hope, a dream, a fear. Uh, I want, and then fill in the blank. A belief is a thought. It's a worldview. It's a, it's a synaptical connection that forms the basis for an opinion. Vaccinations work. Vaccinations don't work. Uh, and uh, there's a, a wonderful image that I just encountered about uh, helping someone to change their beliefs because that's hard. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, I, I actually don't think we do change people's beliefs. What we do is we give them enough information to allow them to change their own beliefs. <laughs> but, uh, but the image is something called the dangling thread. Mm-hmm. So people have a belief, but no beliefs are entirely 100% consistent if you look at them closely. And if you can point out the dangling thread in someone's belief, it's the little thing that doesn't quite fit and, and just leave it there. It's like a discontinuity. Uh, and, and then, you know, in a moment, they sort of tug on that thread the way you might unfortunately tug on a thread on a garment that's loose. And all of a sudden, what happens? Yeah, It unravels. And all of a sudden, this belief, which had a sign of substance, you've helped them 
unravel it so that they can put in place a different picture of what's going yeah. on. Uh, so, so beliefs or thoughts, interests right. or emotions. Oh, that's interesting. Interests or emotions. Okay. Fear, need, greed, uh, desire. The f- why, why do we negotiate to get stuff? Why do we want stuff? We want it because right. we desire it or we fear not having it or something. Okay. Love it. And this is going to take me a while to work my head around thinking about the role of emotion in both interest and in beliefs. And I love the idea of the dangling thread. And I know I have seen that in practice, particularly in a classroom where you're working with a group of people and you present an idea and somebody says, no, that's not how it works. How my business works is X, Y, and Z. And the example I'm thinking about is I turn to someone else in the room and say, well, this person's just as credible in their business. We would all agree. Yes. And they do it differently. So how do you do it? And it took about five, 10 minutes before the other person turns around and goes, oh, you know, I'm missing an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And and they've just just unraveled. They've just pulled their own dangling thread, but you introduced it. You introduce Uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. I think a frontal attack on a belief never works. Um, uh, You know, you can shout. That's why, you know, people, when they disagree, the the fundamental move after a while is to shout as if being louder (laughs) is actually going to, you know, like make it more more persuasive. (laughs) Uh, But you introduce this nagging little dangling thread and then their mind, everybody's mind is a logic machine. Right. You know, they're flawed logics, but there's logics in there. Yeah. And there's this little discontinuity, and their mind starts working on it. And mm-hmm. they don't, maybe don't even know that it's working on it. They certainly don't want it to be worked <laughs> on. But then two days later, they wake up and, you know, change their mind. Right. And, and, you know, of course, the, uh, the magic is um, they think they changed their minds. Right. And you better leave them with that perception. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you don't want to be telling them you change their mind. In fact, I think it's a bad idea to try to change people in general. I think you're better off trying to adapt yourself. Yeah. All right. So let's talk. You have a lovely notion, a process about how to do influence and negotiation. And you talk about there's so many pieces of this that I want to get to. You talk about there are five barriers that get in the way. So tell me about each of those five barriers. Sure. I mean, the, the process that I st- structure for the influence and, and persuasion process is really four steps. <clears throat> the okay. first is preparing. So, right. you know, and, and, and just thinking about who you're going to talk to and who are they and what's the actual goal you're trying to get across. So you have to get your mind primed to it. what's this encounter about. Mm-hmm. Then the second step is, is think about the five barriers that are going to stand between you and being successful. And these are just barriers to getting their attention. Let's, let's be clear. This is not like the end of the process. This is like, I want to be heard. So the five barriers are, first, your relationship. So if you have a negative relationship, that's a barrier. They're not going to hear much of what you say if they don't like you or, um, you know, you, you, you've done something to them recently mm-hmm. and, and, they're, and that's a problem. So keeping your relationships in order in terms of that just liking dimension or at least neutral to dimension, yeah. really important. So barrier number one, relationships. Uh, and if you don't have a very good one, but you know somebody who does, you bring them with you. You know, you yep. can neutralize things by borrowing people's other, uh, you know, right. assets. Number two, credibility. So we've already talked about that. So maximize your credibility in this encounter by 
asking those four questions, authority, expertise, competence, trustworthiness, and where do they stand with respect to me and their thoughts on that? Uh, so you prepare those. Then those are two barriers to you. Right. Then there are three barriers to your idea. Okay. Number one, and, and, and we're reviewing stuff now. It just puts it in a structure. Number one, does your idea conflict with a belief? Mm-hmm. And if it conflicts with a belief, you're going to have a problem. So you have to figure out a way to make it either consistent with their beliefs or, to, or just set the belief problem aside and move forward on the second part of the barrier of the idea. And that's their interest. Right. You know, uh, what you see depends on where you sit in many okay. corporate boardrooms. And if you propose something that's going to decimate their staff, force them to lose budget, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and minimize their authority or their status, you're going to have a problem, even if it's the best idea since sliced bread. Right. So you try to figure out how to minimize the conflicts that will exist over both beliefs and interests as a step in getting your five barriers reduced. And then finally, the communication channel you're on. If they're in IT, you want to kind of go in with uh, some IT vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to talk the tech talk uh, so that they're able to hear what you're saying, use the right metaphors, have the right kind of buzzwords that they uh, use mm-hmm. as shorthand. So, uh, and if you use the wrong ones, you come in with your own buzzwords, your own acronyms problem. They don't understand what you're saying. So right. those five barriers are the two against you, relationships and credibility, and the three against your idea, beliefs, interests, and the language you use. The communication that you use. I would also add on the communication, there's the style, you know, yes. and there's a lot of components of that one. We talked already about numbers and facts versus, you know, general big picture, for example, and we could go on in many yeah. pieces of that communication yeah. channel to get yeah. that one right. Yeah. So okay. just to just to complete the picture. So we got preparation, we're going to encounter the five barriers. Then the third step is to make the pitch. So you've got to put your idea across. And then the final step is to make sure you get the best commitment you can uh, to whatever action you're trying to ask for. Right. Okay. So We've talked around these barriers pretty effectively. I think we got some pretty good ideas about how to tackle each one of the barriers. I love the systematic notion of that and the you know way to think through where am I on this one and what can I do differently? Where am I on this one? What can I do differently? And so on. What's my strategy? Talk for me about it, the pitch. Um, okay. We've said some pieces about this one, but what's key in making that pitch work? Yeah. So actually, when I, when I did the research on this, I discovered that Aristotle and Cicero had figured this out (laughs) and that in this context, there's really nothing new under the sun. A good pitch uses good rhetoric. Okay. Uh, And rhetoric was something they used to teach in schools all the time, but they don't anymore. Uh, So, uh, so persuasion and communication people get to teach it now. Uh, And um, the main kind of rhetorical problem that we're trying to solve in an organization most of the time is what they call a problem of policy. That is, what are we going to do next? So you're walking into this room, you have an idea about opening a new market. You have to make a pitch that's going to follow the structure. And this is cognitive psychology as well as Cicero. Follows the structure of their brain's processing of what do we do next as a problem. So the first thing they want to know is what's the problem? You know, so if the problem is, should we open our new market in Africa? Mm -hmm. Then you have to start with that. This, this, I want to give you some ideas on this problem we are addressing, which is 
how do we open or should we open a new market in Africa? Now, everybody, as long as everybody thinks that's the problem, you're in good shape. But that's where someone could say that I don't, I didn't think that was uh-huh. the problem. We're here to discuss, you know, whether or not uh, we should double the budget for sales, you know, and you go, oh, oh, well, let, then let's get alignment on what the problem is first, because my pitch is going to go nowhere if we don't have alignment <laughs> on the problem. <laughs> so that's number one. Um, then number two is, um, you know, think through these barriers. So uh, you, you've got your, uh, you know, the, the pieces we've already talked about and, uh, and, and, and also kind of begin thinking, why is it a problem? You know, uh, what got us here? Uh, are, were we late to the party in Africa? You know, it, sometimes you don't have to go through that second step of why we got here because everybody has different perceptions to that. And it really doesn't matter. What matters is where we're going forward. <laughs> but sometimes the cause of the problem, if you remove the cause, you solve the problem. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's an optional step. So second step is problem, cause. And then, then the third piece is you put in your proposal and say, here's what I think uh, we ought to do. And, and, and all you have to do at this step is say, and I think it's feasible. Mm-hmm. You know, you, it's sort of an existence proof. Uh, so you just want to say, this is uh, our solution. We think we ought to go into Africa in, in this country first and then that country second. And, and that actually works because they have a good port. And, you know, so it's a, it's a feasibility justification. And then the final step is to prove it's the best option. So you go, uh, okay, here's an option. It's feasible, but here's why it's better than the alternatives and including doing nothing. And now you get into the hard work of cost benefit analysis and justification and data to make your proposal uh, the sort of winner. And you're using the arguments that the audience wants to hear because that's persuasion skill. <laughs> so start with the problem. Look, think about whether the cause needs to be discussed. Put in your uh, answer with its feasibility justification and then nail it with it's the best option among all the feasible right. options. Right. So that's your pitch. That's my pitch. This reminds me of the advice that Shark Tank always gives about making an effective pitch because they're all buried right in there. What they want is because it's a visual medium, they want a visual demonstration of the problem. They want people to see it instantaneously. What is the problem? I can't do this. I can't do that. And then they, you know, something in there about maybe showing why it's a problem. Well, it's a problem because, you know, children can't right. talk, you know. Or people uh, care about this, or there yeah. are so many people that have this problem, or some, you know, making the problem the, the, a big deal. And then there's a demonstration of what you can do, right? right? And I want a visual demonstration that people see instantly. And why it works so well is because everybody else believes they could do it too. Right, right. And that's where they go around and they they give the person a a can to sip or a a product to hold or whatever. Right. right. And so that's why it looks like a a good option because it's, that's the feasibility test. You can do it too. And then I think they skip the best option until we get to the business case of saying, I'm going to invest in your product versus somebody else's well, product. Well, I think when the sharks are, are, are kicking it around, 
they yeah. are, in essence, are saying, well, other people have already done this. Yeah. Uh, it can be done better by sourcing at a different place or not selling online. Or So they, they, they kick around the, 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 the final step by virtue of their expertise. Uh, I, and I just, as you were speaking, I was thinking another way to think about the problem, is, and I think the sharks do this too, is what's the pain? Yes. What's the pain point? Uh, and, you know, we're here because there's something less than right. what we want. Uh, right. and, uh, and, and often in sales, uh, you, that's the first thing you ask is from the customer's point of view, you know, what's the pain point? Right. Well, I think about it in terms, there's so much work happening at the moment in some of my clients around the internal processes mm-hmm. that, you know, we've layered one on top of another, on top of another for a host of good reasons, but it's now gotten to be kludgy and painful right. and focusing on that pain point right. is a piece of getting this going. It strikes me here that one of the hardest pieces of this is to begin to think carefully about the nature of the barriers and how to address those barriers or think about those barriers. One of the things that I know people often don't do when they're giving a pitch, even if it's just a pitch of an idea in front of an audience, they don't address what that audience might be thinking. Right. Like to say, I can imagine that you're doubtful that we can really solve this problem. Right. Yeah. And one of the most important persuasion tools is what we call two-sided arguments. Mm -hmm. And most people, and and by the way, this is the art and science of selling ideas, what I'm talking about. So it really is sales. It's just instead of selling a widget or a car, you're selling an idea. Uh, And a two-sided argument, uh, a one-sided argument is someone comes in and says, here's my idea and here's why it's good. Right. A two-sided argument is, here's my idea, and uh, here's why people might think it's bad. And you, you make the argument that your skeptical audience is already generating, and you're anticipated, and you've articulated it better than they could. Mm-hmm. And then you say, and here's why all those reasons are, uh, are you know, defeated uh, by my proposal and by the reasons that I have on my side. And, and that means you've really taken the audience's point of view into account. And a two-sided argument has a lot more traction than mm-hmm. a one-sided argument does in complex meetings. Makes, right. Yeah. Which are 99% of the problems where we're trying to use influence and get things done. Exactly. All right. Um, last question I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to give you a minute and a half to deal with maybe the most difficult thing on the topic, which is you say that men and women negotiate differently. What do you see? What's the difference? Uh, well, I mean, they, they, um, they negotiate differently. First of all, statistically, they don't have different personality styles when it comes to negotiation. Yeah. So there are just as many competitive women as there are competitive men yeah. in business. You know, I mean, if you went to Mexico and, and did a personality assessment of all the people who lived in villages and all the professional women who work in Mexico City, you might find some differences, but within business as an environment, they don't have different personalities when it comes to this. But what women do have as a problem that men don't have is they have to overcome cultural stereotypes. And uh, like it or not, cultural stereotypes about gender is still, are still prevalent. Mm-hmm. And because of that, women find themselves in a double bind that men don't find themselves in. So the double bind is, uh, a woman in a professional setting has to ask themselves, is this man that I'm going to talk to going to penalize me for being something other than the stereotype? If I'm too uh, 
assertive, if I'm too demanding, are they going to like put me in a category that is not going to help me? Right. And, and often they don't know. And so unconsciously, women will sometimes hold their um, demandingness or their assertiveness in reserve first until they kind of get a sense of who they're dealing with. Well, in a negotiation, what that means is they're not asking for as much. They're not being as demanding. And of course, the man who might be sitting there is got this stereotype. And, and like it or not, I mean, we can all worry about stereotypes. But the fact of the matter is, women have children and men don't. Mm-hmm. And because women are the childbearing sex, nurturing is part of what goes along with the gender difference as a matter of culture. It's, it's not any individual culture. It's normal cultural assumptions. And it's that nurturing association that is what kind of is the thing that is going on here that is almost unconscious. So now the man's looking at this and he sees the woman actually making a negotiation move that's pretty cooperative and not very demanding and goes, oh, well, this fits my stereotype, uh, nurturing. And, uh, and depending on what's going on, they, can, they think, well, I'll just take advantage of this or, you know, they're naive or whatever. Uh, and so, so the problem then becomes how can a woman who's negotiating and, – and, and as a result, the negotiation studies actually show women getting less uh, than they might otherwise get um, in, in, in a lab environment. All you have to do to fix this is get the stereotype out of the way. Now, that's tricky, of course. There are two moves that help systematically. Number one, I've found that advising women or cooperative men, for that matter, don't think you're negotiating on your own behalf. Think instead that you're negotiating on behalf of your client, a cause, uh, you know, your retirement fund, something other than just it's about me. Uh, And as soon as women put that place, that agency role in place and say, I'm here representing, they're, they're, the double bind goes away because now they're representing a professional identity and they have a duty to do. They have a job to do. Um, so that's, that's helpful. And in fact, it, it kind of removes all the differences in the negotiation outcomes. But you still may be up against a genuine sexist who's going to bring this stereotype at you and then start accusing you of being this, that, or the other. Another really good move, if you can make it, is early in the rapport building stage of the negotiation, if the woman can bring some activity, hobby, experience, something to the table as a casual comment that is anti-stereotype, that is breaks all the stereotypes, Um, And it could be something like, um, well, you may remember some years ago, Sarah Palin, who was the former governor of Alaska, ran for vice president with John McCain. And, you know, she's a woman. But what the first thing that she did uh, to break the stereotype, she produced an image of herself shooting animals in uh, Alaska from helicopters. Well, this suddenly is not the female with stereotype. And so whatever else happened with Sarah Palin, we didn't have that problem. Uh, she was <laughs> like, how will we deal with this one? Um, and, and the same thing can happen if you're in a negotiation and you just casually mention, um, you know, your former military duty or, uh, you know, a hobby that is uh, like carpentry or something that's breaking some stereotype that you think the other person is going to have. Then the guy on the other side goes, oh, oh, well, 
I got to deal with this person now. You know, they don't fit the model. So now they're paying attention to who this person is. And then you've opened the door to having the credibility that you deserve. So we had, I had a, a speaker at Wharton who was a, a woman who was the head of business development for a major pharmaceutical. She's very demure, very petite woman. She was like less than five feet tall. And, um, and so she got up and she told her, my students, um, I have a credibility problem. Sometimes people don't really, you know, associate me with uh, competence and I'm a short female. Uh, and what I try to do before I have a negotiation is get them a cover story that was written about me as pharmaceutical woman of the year uh, that was on the front of pharma magazine. And that sort of helps build their image of me that breaks their stereotype. But then in addition, the first paragraph of that story mentions that I'm a former Israeli military officer. <laughs> and she said her goal in doing all this, um, and notice she hasn't done anything, said anything. She just gets her assistant to make sure that they get this. She never mentioned what she did in the Israeli military, which was that she was a teacher. Uh, but see how the stereotypes work. Stereotypes we bring gone, all yeah. this stuff to it, yeah. and then it, that breaks it down. And then she, she says, I love to go in, scare them to death, and then melt their hearts. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. What great advice of ways to counter the stereotype. Fabulous. Richard, we, I think we could talk for another hour about this. I feel like I've only scratched the surface of your knowledge. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. My guest today is Richard Schell. The two books on influence that I strongly recommend are Bargaining for Advantage, Negotiation Strategies for Reasonable People, The Art of Woo, as well as the second one that I think is fabulous. Richard, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining Wanda, us. Wanda, really always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. If you want to know more about how to apply these principles, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.